Hi everyone, I'm Gary Nall. Nice to have you with us today. We begin our program as always with the latest on health and healing. This is a University of Arkansas study and it talks about something that all of us are susceptible to and that is hardening of the arteries, also called atherial sclerosis. You don't want stiff arteries. You don't want calcified arteries. You don't want hard arteries. You want soft and pliable. Well, blueberries, yes, blueberries, a cup a day can help fight arterial sclerosis. And the research provides direct evidence that blueberries can help prevent harmful plaque or lesions symptomatic of atherosclerosis from increasing in size in arteries. So that's important. So one cup of wild blueberries, I suggest wild blueberries because the science shows that wild blueberries, and generally you can get them inexpensively, uh, like a three pound bag for around $12 and uh, frozen. You don't get them very often except in season. And they're a little tiny. They're about half the size of a regular blueberry. They're really powerful. Now, if you're not getting enough sleep, and most people are not, your vascular cells may be drowning in oxidants. So says a study from Columbia University Irving Medical Center. You wake up at the same time every morning. You get the kids out the door and rush to catch the subway to work. But at night, Maybe you stay up until midnight doing laundry or even later, maybe catching up on your bills. Many Americans, about one third of us, are in the same situation and habitually get only five to six hours of sleep instead of a recommended seven to eight. A Columbia study of women now shows that what's happening in the body during the chronic mid-sleep deprivation after just six weeks of shortened sleep, the study found the cells that line our blood vessels are flooded by damaging oxidants. Now you're familiar with antioxidants, vitamin E and vitamin C, and unlike well-researched cells and that are rested, we watch them, we see they're rested. Sleep-restricted cells fail to activate antioxidant responses to clear the destructive molecules. The result? Cells that are inflamed and dysfunctional become an early step in the development of cardiovascular disease. So, what do I recommend? I recommend not exercising within two hours going to bed because you're really speeding up your metabolism. Don't eat food within two hours going to bed, ideally four hours. Don't have a lot of water just before bed because you're going to fill your bladder then you're going to wake up to vacate the bladder. Also, don't have any form of electromagnetic pulsing, cell phones, televisions, unplug them, turn them off. And then if you need to, take some melatonin, which is very good for you to help you sleep. It's a major antioxidant for the brain, made in the brain, in the pineal gland. And also theanine. In green tea, you have caffeine, not good. You also have theanine, very good. So just take 200 milligrams of theanine each night, about two hours before you go to bed. And then if you still have trouble getting to sleep or staying asleep, put on something extremely soothing, like a rainstorm or rain hitting a tin roof. <laughs> that'll put you under. That's really 
comforting. All right? Now, from the University of Sydney in Australia, age-relating hearing loss is halted with folate. Folate is converted in the body to folic acid, and you need that, generally 500 milligrams, but sometimes as high as one milligram. Hearing loss is the most common sensory disorder in the United States. More than 36 million Americans have lost some of their hearing. And those who walk around with earplugs in, not good. Those of you who, you know, listen to the music up loud, high decibels, not good. So most hearing loss is blamed on getting older, but evidence is accumulating that the real culprit could be a lack of B vitamins, especially for late. So this was done at the uh, university, and uh, they showed that if you take folic acid each day, that you're less likely to have hearing loss. How about that? This was presented at the American Academy of Sciences on this topic, Head, Neck, and Surgery Foundation sponsored. So folic acid, B-complex, 25 milligrams B-complex each day. Now, a study which involved researchers from several Australian universities looked at, looked at how much B12 were in people's blood, folic acid, and homocysteine. Homocysteine is not good. It's an inflammatory marker. If you get folic, uh, take folic acid, let's say 500 micrograms, and you take the same amount of B12, and you take 25 milligrams of B6, and 1,000 milligrams of B, uh, vitamin C per day, that helps lower your homocysteine level. When your homocysteine level is below 8, you're in a good range. When it's above 10, you're not. And I see a lot of people who have very elevated homocysteine. That puts you at greater risk of a heart attack or stroke. So something as simple as a B-complex can make all the difference in the world. All right? And next up, from the University of Cincinnati, a study shows changes in brain activity after mindful meditation, especially in young people. Now, we know that more and more young people are suffering from anxiety disorders. And they're the most common psychiatric condition affecting children and adolescents. I do not recommend antidepressants. I do not recommend antipsychotic. I sure as Dickens don't recommend electroconvulsive therapy. But I do recommend that work with a child, see a humanistic psychologist, someone like Dr. Henry Grayson or Dr. Peter Resnick. Because a lot of times, you can talk a child or an adolescent through a situation so they don't overreact. And fear of loss, insecurity, compound the issue. The children need to be out and playing. They need to be around other children, not overly constricted. And right now, because of COVID, they've been overly constricted. So just let children be children, but then get them into mindful meditation, even yoga. And you'll find that that calms them down because it allows a quiet reflection, especially if it's facilitator-led. So that's better than the pharmaceutical approach. This was published in the Journal of Child and Adolescent Psychopharmacology. But they're looking for the drugs that do it, and I'm looking for something that's non-pharmacological. And finally, another study, and this one is from the uh, 
University of College London, antidepressants used tied to increase diabetes risk. One more reason to say no to all the different selective serotonin reuptake inhibitors. But people who use antidepressants for a period of time may become more likely to develop type 2 diabetes than non-users, and including users who have severe depression. This is according to two new studies published in the journal Diabetes Care. Again, get out and exercise that prevents diabetes. Do not be gluttonizing and overeating at any given meal. Break your, break your meals into three separate, approximate same size. A smoothie for breakfast, a good lunch, and a small dinner, having protein at all three. But also it helps if you have, let's say, a B-complex. That helps also. B12 in particular helps. So meditation helps. There's natural non-toxic ways of dealing with this. All right? And that's the latest on health and healing. We're going to take a break because I have a very interesting program for you today. Back in a moment. Please stay with us. inflamed. We are all spectators to a crisis. The crisis in Ukraine, the crisis in Venezuela, the crisis in Yemen, the crisis in, in the Congo, in Niger, and of course the crisis in Israel. But before we make judgments about what the solution should be to stop this and to properly condemn Hamas, for its wanton slaughter of innocent civilians and children. We have to look at the full picture. This is not the beginning of a crisis. This is only one more manifestation of what's been going on for over 70 years. Why? How did it begin? Who is responsible? Why haven't we heard this story, the full story? If our goal is to bring peace to the Israeli citizens and peace to the Palestinian citizens, the Israeli citizens have freedom. They have a democracy. They can vote for who they want, and if they don't like them, they can vote them out. And in fact, 500,000 went to the streets recently to protest different legal decisions by, uh, by Netanyahu, Prime Minister. What freedoms do the Palestinians have? The average person would think, well, don't they have any other, right? No, they don't. What would you think of three separate generations, continuous generations, all being under the control of a superpower? 
where you, in effect, were locked into a contained apartheid, open-air confinement area. It's not a prison because nobody's been convicted of a crime. You got 2.3 million people. It's just in Gaza. You got a couple million people over in the West Bank, and the West Bank's being purged now also. The answer is not to destroy every building. What are you going to do with 2.3 million homeless people who have nothing? You're, you're destroying their belongings, whatever meager possessions they may have. They're dirt poor. 50% are unemployed. And what about those children? To me, every child is sacred. Jewish, Christian, Palestinian. Shouldn't we be bringing to light some sense of calm before things get so bad and we've created so much suffering to so many people and do so in the name of vengeance is mine. I think we can do much better than this. I've already given you some of my input about how we can bring peace and have a healthy group of people on both sides with freedoms to live their own lives through their own customs, their religions, their culture. That hasn't happened. There's been no attempt to make that happen. And the people who live in Israel who would like to see this, and the people who live in the United States who would like to see this, are not in power. Why is it that a certain group of people in power don't want this to happen? To understand this, I'm inviting different people with different points of view, and today you're going to hear a few. You're going to hear Max Blumenthal. He's Jewish, and uh, he lived in Gaza. So he's going to give us his perspective. He's a journalist, award-winning journalist, of the Gray Zone, him and Aramate. And we're also going to hear from Aramate's father, and who is uh, really insightful because he grew up as a Zionist and then he visited uh, Gaza and saw where so many of his beliefs which is propaganda and he changed so we're going to hear from people who've lived in Gaza um, are Jewish but believe there should be a different approach and better understanding of the real underlying problems let's go to that clip now all right, uh, there is so much going on with the Russia-Ukraine war situation being overshadowed by the tragedy happening in Israel, but we, we wanna talk about both of those. We also wanna talk about what's going on here in the United States. To help me make sense of all of it, I have Max Blumenthal from the Gray Zone to come on and, and help us. Max, thank you so much for coming on. Good to see you, Stephen. So I love the work that you guys are doing over at the Gray Zone. You you are exposing stories that the mainstream media just refuses to touch. And uh, you've, you know, we've texted back and forth. You've shared things with me that have been incredibly eye-opening. Uh, and so I appreciate that. The, the first thing that I want to jump into is as of this morning, members of Congress are trying to pressure and persuade President Biden to do another emergency airlift evacuation to get Americans out of Israel as, as quickly as possible. Is that the right move? Uh, has most of the chaos subsided and now we can just get them out regularly? Because what we don't want to see is another chaotic deja vu scene like we saw in Afghanistan, where there's panic, 
and uh, you know, people falling out of airplanes. What are your thoughts on that? Well, it wouldn't, it certainly wouldn't be an Afghanistan situation. Um, these are people who are dual nationals and not people who have to jump into the wheel well of a plane as real refugees to escape. Uh, and there's nothing wrong with doing anything humanitarian to help, but that's not what the Biden administration is seeking to do here. They've sent two aircraft carriers to the region. They're turning up the temperature. They're taking us on a trajectory towards a regional war and the kind of war with Iran that Benjamin Netanyahu has sought to embroil the U.S. in since he returned to the prime minister's office. Um, and we need to step back from this situation in a less emotional way, step away from the nonstop propaganda that's completely one-sided and just look at some context in history to understand how it got so bad and so dangerous. I have spent much of my adult life trying to unpack the situation of Israel-Palestine, coming at it from the perspective of an American Jew who was raised in Washington, D.C., around in an environment where I was immersed in pro-Israel propaganda. I went on a free trip to Israel called Birthright Israel when I was younger, over well over 20 years ago. And I started to think more critically about the situation as I saw what Palestinians were living through and wondered why it required so much indoctrination to, to maintain my support for a country that I had, I'd never been to, which was 5,000 miles away. And so I've written two books about the situation. One, Goliath, came out in 2013. Uh, I spent five years living inside Israel and in the occupied West Bank, uh, five years off and on. And then I went to the Gaza Strip after Israel had a military escalation with the armed factions there, not just Hamas, uh, that left 551 women and children dead and over 100,000 homes destroyed inside Gaza in 2014. And I went there, uh, was in the rubble for days and days and days, and I chronicled the war which lasted 51 days in a book called The 51 Day War. And then I um, produced and directed a documentary with another American Jew, Dan Cohen, about what it was like being in the Gaza Strip in the voices of the people there, including people who have taken up arms and why they fight. And it's called Killing Gaza. And it's, uh, it's certainly not a celebration of violent struggle. It's a lamentation uh, for the situation of these people who are totally ignored by the world. But I think you know, we're talking right now, I'm talking, you know, a lot of uh, people from where I come from, in the, from my political perspective, they sit around and talk to each other. They're in an echo chamber. And I think a lot of, um, you know, people in the America First movement, uh, they, they do the same. And I think it's important um, that we share ideas and history now, uh, because we all are living in a country together that enjoys the geographical advantage being far from the Middle East as well as far from Ukraine and Russia, but we are simultaneously being dragged into three potentially nuclear catastrophic conflicts with Iran, with Russia, and with China. And I think we all agree that this is dangerous. In this situation, it really comes down to uh, Jerusalem, holy sites, but also the issue of occupation 
and siege which Palestinians have lived under continuously almost since 1948. So we need to understand what, what the Gaza Strip is, why people have taken up arms there, um, why they even are displaying ruthlessness, and what Israel's real objectives are here. And so if possible, I'd like to just begin with what I see as the, the original sin, the inception of this conflict. A lot of people say it's biblical thousands of years ago, but it's not true. Jews and Muslims have not always been enemies. Uh, and there are many Palestinian Christians, for example, in Bethlehem and Jerusalem who have been forced to leave because of occupation. The Israeli separation wall has been built through Bethlehem. I know one family that's completely surrounded by that wall, the Anastos family, who are uh, directly descended from the disciples. Um, and they cannot go to Jerusalem to observe Palm Sunday because of that wall. So it's not just Jews and Muslims that are involved, but Jews and Muslims fought the crusaders in Jerusalem. It wasn't originally a religious conflict. It's been turned into a religious conflict because of the desire to construct an exclusively Jewish state in the heart of a territory that had been stateless, that had been in the Ottoman Empire, where primarily Muslims and Christians had lived. And so you had a period from 1898 to 1948 of violent colonization, sort of similar to the United States, where you had people colonizing it who had nowhere, felt they had nowhere else to go. They didn't want to go back to Europe because of anti-Semitism. So they had to fight for every inch. Uh, and this led to a lot of hostility that culminated in 1948 with what Palestinians call the Nakba. 700,000, 750,000 Palestinians were removed from their land in a, uh, during a war. Four, over 400 towns were depopulated, and many of them went to the Gaza Strip. So you have like, you see right now rockets raining down on a town called Ashkelon inside Israel. They've taken the brunt of it. That used to be known as Majdal Askalun, and it was a Palestinian town and its residents were forced out at gunpoint and pushed into what is now the Gaza Strip. So Egypt began supporting uh, the Fedayeen, the guerrilla fighters in the Gaza Strip. And is the Israeli army attacked it many times during this period. Uh, there was a huge massacre of unarmed men in 1956 in the Gaza Strip, and you could just you can see the uh, intensification of hostility and violence building. Uh, the Gaza Strip was formally placed under occupation by the Israeli military in 1967 in the war that Israel initiated against Egypt and Syria. And between 1967 and 2007, 9,000 uh, Jewish Israelis were placed in settlements inside the Gaza Strip in a territory of 1.5 million people, one of the most densely populated places on earth. They took up something like 30% of the water. They were also targeted with violent attacks to get them out. Um, Palestinians, this is well before Hamas. Hamas did not exist. And we'll talk about, I'll talk about Hamas next, why, how they were formed, why they exist, what they want. Um, because of the um, continuous pressure on those settlers and then the violence of the Second Intifada, uh, which actually began in October 2000 with Israel, according to its own defense ministry, firing 1,000 bullets at Palestinian protesters, and then which led to the violence of the suicide bombings, which was horrific for Israeli society. Um, the Palestinian, I'm sorry, the Israeli settlers from in the Gaza Strip, those small 9,000 of them, were taken out 
And then in 2007, Israel initiated a siege of the Gaza Strip. Uh, it is completely walled off. It is controlled on all sides from the air by drones. I went out on a fishing boat with a fisherman from Gaza, and we were stopped three kilometers from the shore by the Israeli Navy who threatened to shoot his boat. Um, and all the good fish was beyond three kilometers. So they've been living under siege. Israel has, um, this is what reported in Israeli media by the newspaper Haaretz, uh, enacted complex mathematical formulas to calculate the amount of calories each Gaza resident should be entitled to each day because they control everything that goes in and out of this tiny strip. It is the most surveilled area on the planet Earth. It's filled with Israeli spies, collaborators, and anytime they seek to break out of their cage, and not just through violence, they face the wrath of the Israeli military. So in 2019, people in the Gaza Strip initiated what they called the Great March of Return, where, and when they say return, they say return to our lands where we are from, where our grandfathers lived, uh, go to be able, be able to go to Jerusalem, be able to leave this hopeless, miserable ghetto that we're forced into. They decided to march without guns toward the wall on the western flank of Gaza and try to march into what is now Israel. Some of the young men had rocks or burning tires, but there were no weapons. And over 200 people were killed. Thousands were wounded. Israel set up snipers above the wall and just shot anyone who got close, mainly shooting them in the legs. And you know, having been in the Gaza Strip, I would just see young men everywhere, missing legs in wheelchairs with uh, crutches, the desperation, who would want to do that? And who would seek to do that? Who would be willing to keep walking at this wall, knowing they were being shot at and going to be shot? It's people who are totally desperate, totally hopeless. There is a massive epidemic of suicide in the Gaza Strip that no one talks about. Children, we're talking about children as young as nine committing suicide. Uh, close to 40% of the population is addicted to a pain-killing drug. I think it's called Ativan that they call the happy pill. So they can just turn off from this reality. And we can see how controlled they are by the fact that Israel has turned off the electricity, the gas and the water. But when I was there, electricity was already rationed to just a few hours a day. And if you turn on the shower, seawater and sewage comes out. So people in Gaza, they bathe with what they call sweet water, which is bottled water that they dump on their bodies after they take the brackish water. So it was already, the siege was already horrible. They've seen, uh, I would count five major military escalations since the siege began. And when the, with, with the removal of the settlers, it allowed Israel freedom of operation in Gaza to use missile strikes, you know, 500 pound, 2000 pound bombs, not just, you know, sending soldiers in street by street, but they could um, level an entire neighborhood, which is what they've done this week, leveled most of the capital of Gaza City. Uh, I can't, I, 26 families have had multiple members, more than five members wiped out. It's just unbelievable. But they're able to do this because there are no Jewish-Israeli settlers in there, as you see inside the West Bank. So they've had from 2007 to the present, um, well more, well, more than five military escalations. And with each one, thousands and thousands are killed inside the Gaza Strip. And it would start like in 2009, 2010, the first major escalation, we saw maybe only 10 Israelis uh, were killed. 
the ability of the armed factions in Gaza to strike back was pretty, pretty pathetic. Um, but each time you see the Israeli casualties rising, especially of Israeli soldiers, as the armed factions in the Gaza Strip start to improve their military capacity. You know, there's no diplomatic path for them. They're not, you see what is happening in the West Bank, where a Palestinian authority, which is effectively disarmed, supported by the US State Department, which coordinates security with Israel, is still presiding over an occupied population that often can't leave and suffers in its own way. So the this, this, the, much of the population in Gaza supports the art, what they call the armed struggle as the only path forward because every other path out of this siege is broken and they see the continuous advancement of these armed factions. They now have these rudimentary drones, which took out two Israeli tanks in the current conflict. They have their own kind of rudimentary version of cavalry with motorcycle divisions. They have their own rudimentary crude Navy with attack boats that are basically converted fishing boats and diver teams. And much of their arsenal is homemade, but those homemade uh, rockets can now reach Tel Aviv. So they're able to, they're, they, it, it, they've become more confident. And at the same time, the population has become more hopeless. Uh, the hopelessness also breeds uh, religious fanaticism and they attacked. And what was the point of this attack? Well, it was spelled out by Hamas Politburo Chairman Khaled Michel. Uh, he called it uh, Operation Al-Aqsa Flood. And it was, first of all, to uh, push back on the Jewish religious nationalist incursions into the Al-Aqsa compound in Jerusalem, which is the third holiest site in Islam. Under Orthodox Jewish law, Jews are actually not allowed to pray there except under special circumstances. But this is a sect within Israeli society that's not only determined to invade that compound, but to replace it with a third Jewish temple to herald the coming of the Jewish Messiah. And this is seen as an affront to the whole world of Islam. So Hamas is positioning it as the protector of Islam by calling it Operation Al-Aqsa Flood. And no one else is protecting that compound. No one else is able to do it. So this is a political play for them, number one. Number two, the West has been trying to normalize with Saudi Arabia and these Gulf states and put the Palestinian question in the icebox for history, which would leave them under occupation and siege. So it's an effort to upend uh, those uh, diplomatic ploys which ignore Palestinians and will say they'll allow Israel to say, well, we made peace with the Arabs. The Palestinians just didn't want peace because Israel would have to offer them real concessions on the ground. Israel doesn't lose anything from making peace with Saudi Arabia. They just get some deals and get to tap into the sovereign wealth fund. And then the third thing that Hamas wanted to achieve with this attack, and also Hamas wasn't the only group involved in it, that needs to be said, was the release of thousands of Palestinian prisoners in Israeli jails. So remember, in 2011, Israel gave up 1,027 Palestinian prisoners for one Israeli soldier who had been captured, Gilad Shalit. So now they have probably dozens of soldiers. The attack was mainly on military bases. And what will Israel have to give up for that? The price is staggering from Israel. They don't even know what to do. And we saw uh, some very ruthless displays, uh, attacks on civilians, killings of civilians. For many of those young men who 
are faceless, nameless, and perceived as animals and terrorists in the West. Um, they saw those, they, they don't see Israelis as anything but their killers, their oppressors, and they've never met them because they've been under siege. If you meet an older person in Gaza, they actually speak Hebrew. They used to work inside Israel. They know Israelis. These younger people, the only time they've ever seen a Star of David is on an Israeli attack craft. So it, it, they see them, they've been dehumanized and they have dehumanized Jewish Israelis in turn. And what they want is not to kill Jews, as Tony Blinken said, or Joe Biden said, that's a way of erasing the whole history and the psychology of the conflict. They want to avenge what they call their martyrs. And many of these young men have lost family members, seen them chewed up, actually seen them beheaded when the roofs get dropped on their head by these airstrikes. And I've interviewed them. I interviewed, and this is in our, uh, the film I made, Killing Gaza, a young man named Wasim Shamali, 15. He was completely traumatized, depressed, couldn't leave his house because his brother was killed by an Israeli sniper on camera as he looked in the rubble for the body of his cousin. And it's, you can see it. I mean, you can go look for the killing of 19-year-old Salem Shamali. It's out there. It's on YouTube. It's in our documentary. I would advise not watching it. But we asked this 15-year-old, what do you want to do when you grow up? And he said, I want to avenge my brother. I want to be a fighter. So that's the mentality. And that's what this... That's what, and, and who's supporting this conflict? Who's supporting the status quo? Who's preventing the end of this kind of, of cycle of retribution? And who's, who's supporting this power imbalance where one side is able to control the electricity, the power and uh, energy and of the other side? It's the United States. It's the United, so ultimately this is our fault. Um, where is this going? Well, it could it could turn into a regional war with Hezbollah opening a northern front. Hezbollah is much stronger than Hamas or the Palestinian Islamic Jihad faction inside the Gaza Strip that have homemade weapons. They have real weapons. They can do targeted strikes. And let's say, uh, you know, Israel bomb levels half of Beirut as it did in 2006 during its failed war against Hezbollah. Let's say Israel marches on Gaza City, uh, which would be a slaughterhouse. And Hezbollah would be able to actually take parts of northern Israel. That's possible. They would be possibly be able to hit Israel's defense ministry in Tel Aviv. The U.S. has two aircraft carriers, and Israel has a very unstable political situation internally with a prime minister who has always sought to, as I said, embroil the U.S. in a war with Iran. It could lead to a regional war that could take us to Tehran and lead to many American deaths as well. So if you step back, look at the history from the perspective that we're not getting from CNN, then maybe we can start to understand how crazy this whole process has been. Uh, but I, And so I think it's important to do that. And I'm happy to talk about um, the history of Hamas, what they are and what they want as well. But I think, you know, that that should uh, yeah. be my... I, I watched your documentary. I appreciate you sending that. I, I did see that uh, that young man killed, uh, which was hard to watch. Um, but just just let me uh, recap uh, yeah. in very simple, just to make sure I'm on the same page. Okay, so there is decades of very bad blood between Palestine and Israel. Uh, now, 
there's this holy site that they're wanting to protect while at the same time avenge their family members that they feel Israel has wronged. And to negotiate the end of the siege on the Gaza Strip where Israel controls everything that goes in and out and no one can leave, including for, for, for often for medical care, it's difficult to get out. So this is, they're using violence as a form of establishing leverage for negotiation. And the only way they've ever been able to get any negotiations going because the war, the West sees Hamas only as a terrorist group and not as a political faction with a very large popular base is by getting captives and trading those captives for concessions. And so that's what's happening here. So that you, you believe that's why they're grabbing so many hostages is because in their mind, they're thinking for every person I grab, we might get a thousand people out of jail. Yes. I mean, Hamas is explicitly asked for Israel to release all female prisoners from its jails in exchange for the female captives that it has. So that's what's taking place right now. And there are many countries negotiating behind the scenes. Yes. Yeah. I know Qatar is involved and many others. Okay. So then just really quickly. So now we, we have this horrible tragedy um, that, that we've all been covering in the news. The United States has moved two aircraft carriers into the region. Uh, there's worry that they're going to provoke Iran, who yeah. has Hezbollah, who is much, much stronger, more calculated, better weaponry than Hamas. The United yes. States just moved USS Ronald Reagan to South Korea to put yep. pressure on Russia and North Korea. So th this whole thing is becoming a giant powder keg, in my opinion, more dangerous than what NATO's been telling us we're going to be dragged into this Russia-Ukraine war. This is like a very this is going this is moving towards a hot war much, much faster than the Russia-Ukraine situation. Is that fair yeah. to say? Yeah, and there's one X factor that you don't have in Russia-Ukraine, which is especially dangerous in this situation. And in it's almost it's it's well. Everyone acknowledges it, but it's forbidden to talk about it in some ways. You'll get called an anti-Semite, uh, or I get called a self-hating Jew. But you have a very powerful Israel lobby in the United States. There isn't really a Ukraine lobby. You have an Israel lobby that in many ways can influence Congress and influence the president, whether it's Democrat or Republican, to act solely in Israel's interest without considering the national interest of the United States, which is obviously different from Israel. It doesn't matter how much you love Israel, the US has different national interests and it is not in the national interest of the US to attack Iran. But we saw Donald Trump fall under the sway of the Israel lobby. I mean, I thought if he's very wealthy, he'll be able to be more independent. And in some ways he was more independent than any other president in recent years. He would go off script, sometimes in very positive ways, uh, in 2015, Donald Trump went off script at a gathering of the Republican Jewish Coalition, which is a Republican Israel lobby group. And he said, a lot of you guys, I mean, you know, Trump likes to tell jokes. And he said, I'm a landlord. A lot of you guys are landlords. And I, I won't, we like to make deals. We're deal makers. Why can't we make a deal between Israel and the Palestinians? I was like, that's what the Trump that, that's very sensible. He was called an anti-Semite for saying that. He was accused of uh, stereotyping Jews as landlords. And Sheldon Adelson comes in, one of the wealthiest men in America, the owner of Las Vegas Sands Casino, 
who has a relationship with Trump's son-in-law, Jared Kushner, whose own family was so connected to Israel, this was reported in the New York Times, that when Benjamin Netanyahu, when he was Israel's opposition leader, would come to town in New York, he would stay with Jared's father, Charles, and Jared would actually have to get out of his bed and stay in his parents' room, and Netanyahu would literally sleep in his bed. So Sheldon Adelson comes in and becomes Trump's the largest funder of Trump's 2016 campaign, as well as his re-election campaign through the Sheldon and Miriam Adelson Foundation, his personal wealth. Trump didn't want to dip into his own coffers. I mean, even if you're wealthy, you don't want to spend all your money on campaign ads because then you'll lose all your money. So he defrays it to Adelson and Adelson says, all you have to do is do a maximum pressure campaign on Iran, uh, start working with Netanyahu. It winds up with the killing of Qasem Soleimani, the second most powerful military figure period in Iran, who's the director of the IRGC, which actually leads to injuries of American troops who were transported to Ramstein Air Base from the Al-Assad base in Iraq. When Iran's ballistic missiles struck that base, they suffered hundreds of traumatic head injuries. This is all because Trump was being manipulated into a conflict for domestic political reasons and because his son-in-law has a passionate attachment to Israel. Imagine if his son-in-law had been Palestinian. I mean, Trump may never had never been president or things would have been completely different on the ground. Then you have the Clintons and the Obamas, uh, the Democrats. They have a Sheldon Adelson in their camp. His name is Haim Saban. He is the largest individual donor to Bill Clinton Hillary Clinton and Barack Obama. And he said, I'm a single issue guy and my issue is Israel. He had his wife, uh, Cheryl, appointed as a UN special ambassador by Obama because he just gave him so much money. And all he wants Obama to, wanted Obama to do was ignore the Palestinian calls for you know, end to occupation and do whatever Israel wanted. I was personally denounced by Hillary Clinton's campaign through a statement it drafted by Jake Sullivan, who's now the NSC director for Biden, because of my views on Israel-Palestine, the views that I'm expressing to you now. Um, and my father had been working sort of on the fringes of Hillary Clinton's 2016 campaign. So the Trump campaign took advantage of that and tried to paint me as Hillary's secret Middle East advisor, even though I met her like once when I was a kid for two seconds, had no connection to her. And Haim Saban came in and said, you have to denounce this guy, get him out of here. And immediately a statement went out under Hillary Clinton's name, denouncing me, someone who had no connection to her. It was completely insane. So we have this powerful lobby. You saw just saw Tony Blinken, the secretary of state, on uh, national TV. He's in Israel right now. He's participating in their war cabinet meetings. He is a member of the Israel lobby, but he's supposed to be our chief diplomat. He's not putting, he's not putting America first here. He's not able to. It's unclear what he's putting first, but his grandfather actually started a think tank in the 1930s. His name was Maurice to lobby for the Zionist movement in Palestine. His father-in-law, who raised him since age nine, Samuel Pissar, was a major figure in the French uh, French Jewish world who was very pro-Israel and was kind of a counselor to Francois Mitterrand. But he was also the consigliere to Robert Maxwell, Robert Maxwell being the father of Ghislaine Maxwell, Robert Maxwell being a Mossad agent who had a de facto state burial in Israel. Look up Samuel Pissar, if you're watching this, 
and Robert Maxwell. Samuel Pissar is the man who raised Tony Blinken. And the last phone call that Robert Maxwell made before he mysteriously fell off his yacht was to Samuel Pissar. And so Tony Blinken is supposed to preside over a resolution to this conflict with all of these passionate attachments and familial ties. He said that he's inherited his commitment to Israel's strength. And I think what we want in a diplomat is someone who looks at all sides, balances all sides, and tries to come to a peaceful resolution. But what you have here is someone who seems to take everything personally. He's also said, I have family from Ukraine. That's why I support Ukraine. Uh, and we'll talk, I'll talk more about that when we get on that issue. Yeah. But this is the opposite of diplomacy. This is so dangerous right now. And so we have all of the ingredients for World War III because we're not thinking rationally. We're not looking at history and we refuse to look at the, 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 the needs of both sides. We're just hearing these crazy uh, denunciations. Hamas is ISIS. Hamas is Al-Qaeda. This is another 9-11. Well, where did 9-11 lead us, Stephen? It's Max Blumenthal, the gray zone. And you could agree or disagree with anything he said, but he's giving us a perspective that the average person, I dare say the average Jewish person, who is pro-Israel, understandable. But why not look to see what within the history of the relationship between the Jewish state and the Palestinian people was turned upside down? I saw an email today, I'm going to read just a little piece of it, and it comes from a person who's highly respected, Charles Eisenstein. And it's an article uh, on his substack, and it's called Hamas, Israel, and the Devil on My Shoulder. And a lot of it to me was just a word salad. It, it, it was just saying a lot of things. Why, I don't know. Maybe to put himself in a more neutral position. But here is his suggestions. Now see if any of these make sense to you or if you see bias in his suggestions. One, the immediate cessation of all military operations on all sides. I would agree with that. Two, the immediate suspension of the government of both Gaza and West Bank and their temporary replacement by a neutral international governing and peace force authorized to use force to prevent any further attacks on Israel or arrest if necessary to kill any militants threatening to do so. Three, the immediate convening of a special committee of the UN Security Council charged with negotiating a final status settlement of the Israeli-Palestinian conflict according to UN Security Council Resolution 1397, which, by the way, is just the two-state solution. You've got Palestinians having their own sovereign state and you have Israel having its sovereign state. Four, the rest uh, restoration of water, food, medicine, electricity to Gaza to be controlled and monitored by this same international consortium. Uh, typically, partisans dismiss such proposals as, quote, showing weakness. But no one seriously doubts Israel's ability to reduce Gaza to dust and kill every living soul in the territory if it so chooses. Israel, after all, possesses at least 100 nuclear warheads to go beyond re restraint and halt the cycle of vengeance in its tracks, which show not weakness, but a heroic degree of courage. And finally, Hamas terrorists in Saudi's attacks show what people do when they cast off the bonds of restraint to unleash the most bestial impulses of the human being. Now the test falls to Israel. If Israel too chooses to abandon restraint, and the next country does, and the next 
then the atrocities will escalate to engulf the entire planet. In in a world of nuclear weapons, let us hope someone, somewhere, chooses to hold back. By the way, as of today, you have Hezbollah engaged. You have Iran saying that it's not, but people doubt that. And you also have Lebanon um, engaged. You have Israel bombing the major airport in Syria and uh, and has already taken Israel's uh, Golan Heights. But what I see missing in there is, why don't you also have the same restraints you would place against uh, the Palestinians in West Bank and Gaza, also with the ruling body in Israel? The trouble is that'll never happen. Every single politician, even with the best of intents, in Israel and in the United States around the world, they brought reasonable solutions. But unreasonable people who are in power can take all the good thoughts in the world and just cast them aside. So that's why we need a greater look at the deeper underlying uh, constructs that are in play here. I'd like your thoughts. 888-874-4888. You'll have about 60 seconds to pick up the phone and give us a call. I'd like to hear what you have to say on this. Again, I'm having scholars in starting tomorrow who are going to talk about what's going on there in some depth. And uh, so give us a call. If I don't get any calls, then I will uh, I will go to the second clip, which is a highly respected psychologist, humanist, and uh, Dr. Gabor Mate, Aaron Mate's father, who was a Zionist, went into Gaza, and then it changed his mind. And he's coming at this from a very heartfelt position. He doesn't want to see anyone, rightly so, harmed and living with such such a such existential threat nonstop. 888-874-4888 is our number. Please call now if you'd like to be heard. We'll be happy to have you on. And I just want to ask my studio in New York, or anyone is anyone calling in? You have Jeremiah. Jeremiah from Harlan, the Harlem Oracle, your turn. You're on. Pleasure to talk with you, Gary. Well, one point that I would like to make that I really don't hear mentioned um, too clearly, and I mean, I guess you could state this is my opinion, but I think there's a lot to, to back it up, which is simply that the reason why the United States is committed to the Israel project and the reason why we have this sort of separate foreign policy designated to them is based on a World War III scenario. I don't think it's based on any sort of religious concept. I think that's for show. That's an easy thing to sort of um, write off what's really happening. Um, You know, it's easy to uh, just describe it as just a, a conflict between two ethnic peoples. But I think the major investment is based on a World War III concept where the United States is fighting, say, Russia and or China and we need a nuclear-armed state in that tumultuous region of the world for strategic reasons. And uh, military strategy is based on events happening 50 to 100 years in advance. So I think while there's a lot of interesting um, historical things to discuss and little ideological debates that we can have, uh, the military doesn't abide by that. The military is based on overarching concepts. Well, virtually every host on on Fox 
which is very difficult to watch because it's such neocon ideology, pro-war, Hannity, Laura Ingram, etc. They're having people on who are talking about the military option. They want to go after Iran. Iran has 90 million people. Iran, Iran is three times the size of Iraq. Now Iraq, and the most powerful person in Iraq is not the prime minister. He's insignificant. Uh, there is a cleric there who studied in, uh, in Iran, Muktasadr, and he is backing, uh, he is going along with Lebanon, and, and now you get Turkey going into uh, to fight the Kurds, and he's backing the uh, Palestinian people. So it would not take a lot to start something that could not be turned off. And the United States couldn't win against bike riding Vietnamese, North the Viet Cong in Vietnam over 10 years, couldn't win against Afghanistan. What the hell do you think would happen with Russia that is far smarter militarily than we are, far more capable when you add in China China and Russia working together, because if you go after one, you've gone after both. And uh, we would be destroyed. How many terrorists right now do you think are in the United States as sleeping cells who've come across our border for no other reason than Dem Democrats who are just, do not allow any Democrat in America to say that they're liberal. They've abused the word liberal. They're fascist. And they've allowed this all to get by votes. But tell them, are you, are you, do you care about our security from terrorists around the world who would like to do us harm? Oh, yeah. Well, then why do you have an open border allowing them to come across? So just imagine what would happen if this goes beyond a certain point. I thank you very much for that. And by the way, just to let you know, when Max was saying how much of a lobby effort is in Washington, why everyone's terrified to say anything that would give any support to a different way of approaching, a more peaceful way of approaching this conflict. Uh, they're called anti-Semites. Nobody wants to be called anti-Semite. Nobody wants to be called a racist. Well, this is just in. This is from Matt Kennard. Prime Minister Boris Johnson visited Israel in 2004, paid for by the Israeli government, but failed to register with Parliament for four years. The pro-Israeli lobby organized battle bus for Johnson's mayor election campaign. In fact, one third of the entire Boris Johnson uh, group was funded by Israel or pro-Israeli lobby groups. So when, you're, when, you're, when you have control over the prime minister of a country, then you have control over that country on many levels. And we're not talking about this. Thank you very much for your call. Do we have any other calls? We've got to say goodbye to our BA audience. Uh, no other calls. We're going to go to part of this clip. You'll get enough of the clip to understand what he's saying. And this is Dr. Uh, Mate. This is one of the issues that's closest to my heart. And it has been for a long time. So, you know my history. I don't know to repeat it, but I'm, a, I'm personally a Holocaust survivor as an infant. Um, I barely survived. My, my, my grandparents were killed in Auschwitz. And uh, most of my extended family was killed. Um, that's my personal background. I grew up ashamed of my Jewishness. In, uh, in Hungary, after the war, I was still bullied for being Jewish. 
And I remember one of my friends coming to my rescue once saying, leave him alone, it's not his fault that he's Jewish. It's a fault, but it's not his fault. This was the defense. So I grew up with that. In my teenage years in Canada, I became a Zionist. This dream of the Jewish people resurrected in their historical homeland and the barbed wire of Auschwitz being replaced by the boundaries of a, of a Jewish state with a powerful army. I, I found it liberating. It was exhilarating to believe in that dream. And I absorbed all, the, all that perspective and all that point of view, and I really believed in it. And then I found out that it wasn't exactly like that. That in order to make this Jewish dream a reality, we had to visit a nightmare on the local population. You couldn't, there was a Zionist slogan called, uh, um, a land without a people for a people without a land. But there was no people with, there was no land without a people. There was people living there who'd be living there for hundreds and years or even longer. As a matter of fact, <laughs> if you want to hear something really interesting, and David Ben-Gurion, who was the first Prime Minister of Israel, actually subscribed to this. He said this, <clears throat> who are the Palestinians? Because the Jews in uh, Roman times, never all, all of them never left Palestine. Many of them stayed there. And some of them, hundreds of years, hundreds of years later, converted to Islam. So guess who the Palestinians are? In some ways, they might be descendants of ancient Jews. They are cousins, to say the least, no matter how you look at it. And, you know, and there's no way you could have ever created uh, a Jewish state without uh, oppressing and ex expelling the local population, which is what they did in 1947, beginning in 1947, and first of all with British Empire protection, you know, but they did this, and then in 1948, Israeli historians, Israeli historians, Jewish Israeli historians, have shown without a doubt that the expulsion of the Palestinians was persistent, it was pervasive, it was cruel, it was murderous, and a deliberate attempt. So that's what's called the Nakba in Arabic, the disaster or the catastrophe. Now in, Israel, now in Canada, there's a law that you cannot deny the Holocaust. I don't believe in such laws, by the way. But in Israel, you're not allowed to mention the Nakba even though it was at the very basis of the foundation of the state. So, once I became aware of all this, I was... We'll continue with the rest of that interview on tomorrow's program. Thank you all for listening, and again, this is just a dialogue to fill in some of the blanks of what we don't know, to get a better perspective, a more honest perspective, so we can come to solutions that benefits both the Jewish people and the Palestinian people and stop the conflict from going to the, to the other end of reality. Have a nice day, everyone.